This is an RNZ podcast. This is Media Watch. I'm Colin Peacock. And it's been another eventful week for our nation's media. Stand by. On Friday, the Broadcasting and Digital Media Minister Chris Farfoy announced millions of dollars in public funding for community news and journalism. We look at where that might end up and what it might mean for your media. And on Wednesday, confrontational talkback host Sean Plunkett quit the troubled national network Magic Talk, two weeks after the owner MediaWorks fired fill-in host John Banks for a racist blurt on the same station. The telco Vodafones responded to that with an ethical advertising policy, which one headline called a blacklist of hateful media. We ask Vodafone, is that what it is? And shouldn't a company dedicated to simply connecting us all just stick to doing that? But before all that, our national airline was hit with harsh headlines this week about a controversy that it could have seen coming, calling into question just how it handles the media during tough times for the entire travel industry. Um, We do have obligations as a country to make sure that we're uh, applying, for instance, UN sanctions and so on. And whilst at this stage it's not clear whether what happened here would have fallen within that, there are still reputational issues. Does it pass the sniff test? Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern there at Parliament on Tuesday answering reporters' questions about Air New Zealand doing work for Saudi Arabia. And in the same stand-up, she also said it didn't pass the sniff test. Regardless, it just doesn't pass New Zealand's sniff test. Obviously, this is something that has uh, ramifications for New Zealand, its reputation. It was TVNZ political reporter Benedict Collins who put that bad odour out in public on Monday evening with a scoop about an Air New Zealand subsidiary mending vessels for the Saudi Navy, which has been blockading war-torn Yemen for years, intensifying the misery and suffering of almost everybody there. A Saudi Navy blockade has stopped food and medicine getting into the country, leaving five million people one step away from famine. And the government's majority stake in the airline made this a political issue, not just a corporate one or even a moral one. When first asked about it, shareholding minister Grant Robertson didn't know about all this, calling it an operational matter for Air New Zealand. But the way the airline decided to operate on this raised big questions about its handling of the story. Air New Zealand really didn't want the public to know about this, did they, Benedict? Oh, they absolutely did not. For weeks they ignored One News. They refused to answer our questions about what they were up to in Saudi Arabia. It took seven weeks for us just to get that statement that you saw there in that track, and that was only after the government got involved. That same night, Benedict Collins had this update on the nuts and bolts response from Air New Zealand. They have now made that decision, they've terminated the contract, and they've said they're going to send that engine back to the Saudis in pieces. And it's not just that engine that's been well and truly dismantled this past week. On Thursday, TVNZ's Benedict Collins was in the front row when Air New Zealand's top brass appeared before Parliament's Transport Select Committee for the airline's annual review. And National MP Mark Mitchell got the first question in to Chief Executive Greg Foran. Why did it take so long for them to answer TVNZ's questions? Yeah, sure. Look, when the inquiry first came through, which was, I think, around about the 10th of December, it was tackled by someone reasonably junior in the communications team. And as they started to talk to the team in gas turbines, the gas turbine teams and the QCOMS team got themselves caught up in the fact that this was done through a third party. And that's not the first time a junior staffer has been cited as the source of a problem that's created bad PR and harsh headlines for a major company or public outfit. Now, before that explanation, in her weekly flipside column for the National Business Review, senior journalist Dita Deboney highlighted what she called 
Air New Zealand's horrible approach to public relations. As part of what one assumes to be a deliberate management strategy, Air New Zealand comms people have typically been unhelpful, opaque or outright aggressive, unless you were seeking to write glowingly on a new route or in-flight service offerings. Tita Deboni went on to make the point that other Kiwi companies which don't have the profile of Air New Zealand may also be doing business with Saudi Arabia, which they wouldn't necessarily want made public. Now, the Saudi deal, which no one wants to own up to now, was done well before the current chief executive, Greg Foran, took over. But with TVNZ's unanswered queries about the deal in the background, the decision to have the boss do a round of interviews last week to mark his first full year in the job was surprising. First up in this PR blitz was News Hub's AM show, where Greg Foran said he had no regrets. What a privilege it's been to be able to come back to New Zealand after 25 years and to have this opportunity to work in, you know, what I think is one of the great brands in the world. On Thursday the 4th of February, Morning Report on RNZ National introduced a 10-minute chat with Greg Foran like this. After scaling the peaks of the American corporate landscape, the last 12 months have been a mind-bending change for the chief executive of Air New Zealand, Greg Foran. Mr Foran this week clocked up a year in charge of the national carrier, a period dominated by the devastating impact of COVID-19. The travel industry has been crippled and a scaled down. Air New Zealand continues to burn through cash, but amidst the uncertainty is optimism the company can thrive once again. After that, the Herald's business section ran an interview with Greg Foran the next day, as did Stuff, under the headline, No Regrets, Air New Zealand Boss Says It's Been a Privilege to Lead the Airline Through the COVID-19 Crisis. Now, this article revealed that Greg Foran had to pull flights out of Shanghai due to the COVID outbreak on his first day as the chief executive last year. Indeed, his first ever day in the airline business, full stop. And also, he and his wife had a young child and another one on the way at the time and were renovating a home in Auckland, according to Stuff. And Stuff said the top man also joined staff on the tools from time to time, even serving passengers on flights. And that was one reason Greg Foran even got a mention last week in the online outlet Human Resources Director under the headline Air New Zealand Boss Praises Staff After Toughest Year Ever. So a lot of pretty good PR in all that. But days later, another PR problem cropped up last weekend. Auckland University microbiologist Dr Susie Wiles lashed Air New Zealand for allowing passengers to take their masks off on board for snacks, thereby undermining, she said, the public health messaging. And she also accused them of paying people who've been opposed to New Zealand's elimination strategy. Now that was a reference to a new paper by four experts proposing a traffic light system to manage the risk of international air travel as soon as possible. And that was not in fact funded by Air New Zealand as it turns out, but by Auckland International Airport, which also has an obvious vested interest in overseas flights taking off again. And all this certainly appealed to Mike Hosking on News Talk ZB. From our Here We Go Again file, our major airports near New Zealand back in the border discussion this morning. They're backing a model designed by medical experts to help reopen it. Developed over the last six months, published today in the New Zealand Medical Journal, they call it an international standard multi-layered risk-based approach. And it was indeed a case of Here We Go Again. Last July, Mike Hosking was backing a call from the International Air Travel Association, which represents more than 300 airlines, urging New Zealand and other countries not to quarantine travellers. People all over Europe are going on holiday, right? It's summer, the borders are now largely open, planes are flying, tickets are being booked and you can go on holiday. IATA, 
The aeroplane people last week issued a warning for countries like ours that if we keep borders shut, we run the risk of being left behind. Now, there's self-interest in that, of course. Uh, They're desperate for planes to fly and normality to return. But for a country like ours, for regions like Central Otago, this is crippling. This summer, Central Otago was still open for domestic business. European holiday hotspots, not so much. The IATA plan involved pre-flight screening and then contact tracing after arrival, but that was it. All the heavy lifting would have to be done by national governments. But six months ago, Mike Hosking told his listeners what was good for the airlines would be good for us all. People get on with it. If they want to travel and they can, they will. And if it doesn't include us, then the only losers are us. Well, many people who did get on with their European summer holidays back then also got COVID. Quarantine for returnees was brought in for many countries soon after that, including the UK. The report last week proposing a traffic light system by the four experts contracted by Auckland Airport was actually first prepared in August, which is now more than six months ago. And three other experts analysing it for the Science Media Centre this week concluded the scheme wasn't practical and had been overtaken by events since then. But back on ZB, Mike Hosking unequivocally argued that the government, again, should take a lead from the air travel industry and from Australia. Do something productive. If you want to open the borders, listen to the airlines. Do the green, orange and red or whatever the number or numerical system they want to run is. There's plenty of answers. The problem is attitude. And if you look at Morrison, he's got the right attitude. If you look at our government, they don't. But it was Australia, remember, that shut down flights to New Zealand recently after a single case of community transmission here and their own states over there can't even agree on the border restrictions. The federal government in Australia is only promising a week-by-week review of border restrictions based on medical advice and the rollout of vaccines. And last week, the Australian Financial Review reported that Prime Minister Scott Morrison has only said that plans for another 12 months of border restrictions and hotel quarantine rules could be reconsidered. This week, Stuff's political editor Luke Malpass said that our Prime Minister has pushed back a trans-Tasman bubble target because of a lack of clarity in what Australia might do next. And Jacinda Ardern told him... You cannot unscramble the egg. Once borders are open, we have to make sure that we can make it work because it will be damaging economically. If we open, close, open, close, and then permanently shut it, no one wants that. Well, no one except perhaps the people running the airlines, airports and international tourism and those cheerleading for them in the media because of the supposed economic benefits. Last Wednesday, ZB host Kate Hawksby, coincidentally also the partner of Mike Hosking, asked this question on her show. When the borders open back up, how many of us will be packing up and waving sayonara to the Kiwi campervan experience and all those family trips to Rotorua and hurling ourselves onto planes again? How many of us are missing airports and crowds and being in foreign places and having international experiences? And Kate Hawksby then answered her own question like this. And mixing that, of course, with a big dose of homegrown pride at how clear of COVID we are, and we've got a a bit of a winning combination, don't we, that we may not want to undo. I mean, time will tell, obviously, but I do have a sneaky suspicion. Once we get the all clear to go... We'll be storming through those international departure gates in record numbers. Well, that may be so, and if so, the travel industry will certainly be urging them on with the help of friendly voices in the media. But beware the spin coming from them once the vaccine rollout does get rolling.
It's now three weeks since former MP John Banks, filling in as a talkback host on the national network Magic Talk, took that now notorious call from Richard. And I'm not interested one bit, and neither have my children been interested in their Stone Age culture. Oh, just a minute, just a minute. As you heard there, John Banks had the chance to shut down Richard's racism, but he made it worse by agreeing with Richard and amplifying it. And that prompted calls for the owner MediaWorks to clean up the company's on-air act. And soon after that, MediaWorks dumped John Banks. Now, last Wednesday, MediaWorks announced that confrontational host Sean Plunkett has left the Magic Talk Network too, after two days off the air amid reports of discussions between the host and his employer. No reason was given, but an interview last year about iwi-run COVID checkpoints, which the Broadcasting Standards Authority recently deemed a breach of standards for discrimination and denigration, might be a relevant factor. But the kind of contrarianism that the station's become known for in recent times hasn't vanished. Last Monday, over the entire three hours of his show, the Magic Morning host Peter Williams downplayed the danger of COVID-19. We had that virulent South African strain in this country the other week, didn't we? Didn't appear to be particularly virulent or particularly contagious. All those contacts of the woman in Northland, all negative. And Peter Williams went on to extensively air his own doubts about COVID vaccines and the government's plan to roll them out. So if we don't have COVID in the community, why the rush? Why the rush to have everybody get a needle in their arm? That's the only question I raise. Several of Peter Williams' callers aired misinformation that went unchallenged by the host. And the thing that people might want to look at um, about this particular so-called vaccine um, is that um, it's a vaccine that will actually alter our DNA. And Peter Williams added a bit of it himself. And I mean, for, for the coronavirus, 99.7% of people recover from naturally. I mean, people should be right, questioning it, why this is it, thing was Is it that low, is it? I thought it was more like 99.9%, but I, I, I hear what you're saying. Oh, yeah. Peter Williams told his listeners that Medsafe had refused to be interviewed on that show about the Pfizer vaccine's approval. And the next day, Peter Williams even directed his listeners to a group campaigning against COVID vaccines. Uh, I don't know who they are or what particular area of expertise or experience uh, they have. Uh, they referred me to their website. And again, that's asking questions similar to mine here yesterday, except uh, they appear to know far more about the science, especially about something known as molecular mimicry. Hayden Donnell took a look at all that last Wednesday and other issues in the media on Midweek Media Watch, our weekly catch-up with Karen Hay on The Lately Show here on RNZ National. If you missed it, it's on our webpage at rnz.co.nz or on the RNZ app. And it's also available, along with Media Watch each weekend, in our podcast feed. So if you haven't already, subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. Magic Talk's commercial clients were quick to condemn John Banks after those racist comments late last month, and a number of companies and clients claimed they'd take their advertising dollars somewhere else if the broadcaster didn't take action. And one of the first to do so was the telco Vodafone, which suspended advertising with the station and said this. We don't condone racism in any way and instead aim to work with organisations and support initiatives that celebrate diversity and foster inclusion. We believe it's important to walk the talk. But Vodafone was positively sprinting to distance itself from Magic Talk and its condemnation came within an hour of it being reported on social media. 
A quick response usually elicits a brand-enhancing praise, said Mark Jennings, formerly the long-serving news boss at MediaWorks, reporting on his own outlet, newsroom.co.nz. And it certainly did get Vodafone bracketed with the likes of its rival Spark, Kiwi Bank and Trade Me in news coverage. And last Friday, Vodafone released a brand new ethical advertising policy based on four values-based principles, celebrating Aotearoa, being positive, supportive and inclusive, championing honest content and doing the right thing. And those principles all sound nice, but who's to say what's the right thing? Vodafone said it would monitor the media in future to make sure they are aligned to Vodafone's brand values, and this ethical advertising policy would actually specify approved and preferred partners, as well as platforms on which it won't advertise. In explaining why, Vodafone's marketing tribe lead Delina Shields told staff, we need to make judgement calls, and she warned... We might not always get it right, as the policy gets tested by the complexity of real life. But if they do get it wrong, couldn't that be damaging for the companies they decide isn't worthy of their advertising? And what about their own customers and what they believe or are prepared to support? We've been talking for quite a long time about the values that are important to us as an organisation and also about how our brand shows up. And this really prompted us, I think, to take that one step further and also think about where we're saying it and who we're saying it with. Is there a risk, though, in developing a policy that's could be seen as being a bit hasty, you know, off the back of a bit of a controversy. The public might think, or even, you know, clients and other media might think, you'll kind of take advantage of that particular situation? It was really the culmination of a conversation that had been happening for quite a long time. And when we got to that point of empowering our team to make a decision about where we showed up as a brand, it occurred to us that actually creating that more in a policy sense would make that simpler for people going forward. So we just wanted to really make it easy for our team to feel well empowered around our values and able to make great decisions about where we show up as a brand. And actually, of course, you've got a chief executive who knows all about uh, you know, modern media and the relationship with advertising, right? Jason Paris was um, a former executive at MediaWorks itself and prior to that TVNZ. Was he actually quite instrumental in developing this? He's definitely got very clear views about how we stand up and how we show up as a brand. But in terms of actually drafting and developing the policy, the team were fully empowered to design and develop that. I see on LinkedIn that Meridian Energy yesterday posted that they're going to develop their own ethical advertising policy. And in fact, their marketing CMO has, has reached out and we'll work on that together and share some learnings you know, as we go along the way. Is your policy really going a bit of a step further than that? Um, I mean, I know you've got... Uh, you can block calls and texts for harassment purposes and you intervene um, you know, in that regard. But is this going beyond Vodafone's mission, as most people would see it, which is just to connect us all? Um, this isn't really about uh, connecting others. This is about our brand and what the brand stands for and stands up for. But how on earth are you going to monitor all these media to work out which ones align with your values and which don't, as you pointed out in your own um, release to staff, you know, you use hundreds of platforms from the broad reach, radio and television advertising that you know we can all identify very easily to like really targeted um, digital micro campaigns that might only be seen by you know quite a target audience on, on quite a small platform. Mm-hmm. How are you going to monitor them all? 
We've also got a wonderful team here who are very media hungry and have great consumption, so they've got their eyes and ears open. And in fact, I'm confident that our customers are going to hold us to account as well. And they'll be quick to point out if they believe that we um, have inadvertently ended up in a place that we that doesn't align with our values. Yeah, I mean, that, that happened, didn't it, with the um, Magic Talk incident after John Banks, somebody screenshot a, um, a Vodafone banner ad that was on the site of the station. You know, the response came, I think, within an hour of, of that being seen, that the advertising Vodafone was being pulled from that network. I mean, practically, are there going to be people actively actually looking at media, looking for things that you think don't align with the values and then compiling what what are described in one part of the policy as inclusion and exclusion lists. So we are always using the inclusion and exclusion list to ensure that particularly um, that helps us in the area of digital media, where there are so many different places to turn up, to ensure that our media partners are putting us in the right places. So that's an ongoing activity, and we've been doing that for many, many years. Um, This is just heightening the awareness and understanding of our team about where we want to stand up as a brand and the values we stand for to help them to make really great decisions. I mean, one part of it that I think journalists will be really interested in particularly is the championing of uh, honest content. But, but does that mean if a media outlet is accused of publishing misinformation, you, you, you would then respond by saying, well, right, we're taking our ads off, off that network as well? Is that how it would work? I think it'll be more of a case-by-case basis, to be honest with you, Colin. It's a bit difficult, and and this is why the policy, I think, will grow and evolve over time. And it's important, obviously, that we get the balance right between freedom of expression and us holding true to to our values and what we believe in as a brand. But to give you an example, um, right now, it's the network that's been in the news, but Magic Talk, just last Monday, their morning host, uh, Peter Williams, spent an entire program an entire morning talking about COVID vaccines. He aired his own doubts about them extensively. A lot of callers called up saying things that were completely not scientific. Sowed a lot of worry, I think, in the minds of people who might be concerned about whether the vaccines were safe, had been developed at haste. Peter Williams really urging caution. Would that be something that would concern you if you still had an advertising relationship with them, just as an example? Currently, we continue to choose not to advertise with Magic Talk uh, based on the current environment and kind of, I guess, style of editorial that goes on there. I do want to hasten to add that MediaWorks continue to be a partner of ours, and obviously they have a number of other stations and opportunities that do align more with our values than Magic Talk does currently. Reporting uh, your ethical advertising policy, the Stuff uh, site put the headline on it, uh, a blacklist of hateful media was how they described it. I don't know if you'd approve of that description. It's possibly a bit more emotive. Really what we're doing is just trying to make it really easy for our teams to be really clear on how empowered they are when we see something that doesn't align with our brand values. And really this is just about our brand values. It's not a statement on the values of New Zealand. So in standing up for your values then and giving your advertising to companies you believe align with them, Do you actually want to influence the editorial content New Zealanders get in their media? Absolutely not um, our intention at all, and I don't see that as the role of a brand um, within the New Zealand environment. It's really what 
what is our brand about? What are our values? What do we want to be known for? And how do we want to conduct ourselves? And ensuring that we stay really true to that. But would, say, your company staff, would they be in a position to say to a media outlet, hey, if you publish any more of that sort of stuff, be it, you know, I don't know, anti-vax or climate denial, whatever, we might be pulling our dollars. Would it be used like that? I hope that it would be more um, an upfront conversation about context uh, as we're having with our partners at the moment so that should that happen it wouldn't be a surprise if we chose not to advertise there as opposed to it being held as some sort of bargaining chip. I don't think that's the role of it at all. It's really just saying to our media partners at the beginning, these are the values that are really, really important to us as opposed to any form of negotiation. That's not at all what this is about. It was Delina Shields, the marketing tribe lead at Vodafone New Zealand, which has a new ethical advertising policy, partly brought in in response to the John Banks magic talk on-air racism controversy. On Friday afternoon, the Minister for Broadcasting and Media, Chris Farfoy, popped into the headquarters of Allied Press in Dunedin, the publisher of the city's daily paper, the Otago Daily Times, and many other local papers too. Now, the ODT was founded in 1861, and this was the location Chris Farfoy chose to unveil what he says is his government's latest move to sustain important news and journalism into the future. $55 million over the next three years in a contestable fund to which media companies big and small, local and national, can all apply to bankroll their work and their projects. Now this is the biggest single boost to media funding for years, but Friday's big reveal wasn't a complete surprise. After a package of measures to ease the immediate plight of media companies hit hard by a sudden slump in revenue during the COVID-19 lockdowns last year, Chris Farfoy promised a second tranche of support in 2020, but that never came, and in August, Chris Farfoy eventually admitted there was a lack of support for it elsewhere in the governing coalition, assumed by most in the media to mean New Zealand first. But in any case, the minister said back then, media companies seem to be doing better than many expected in the second half of 2020, after the lockdowns lifted. However, in the run-up to the last election, he told representatives of the main journalist union, Etu, that such a scheme was in the pipeline, and with the coalition partners no longer a roadblock after the election last October, Chris Farfoy did get cabinet approval for the funding he announced this week. The new money will be allocated by the government's broadcasting funding agency, New Zealand On Air, and the first $10 million will be available this year, the minister said, and that fund could be taking applications as soon as late April. Now, this news has been welcomed by the private media companies who, until recent years, got no public funding for their work and little from New Zealand on air. And long before COVID-19 cropped up, indeed, soon after he became the minister in 2018, Chris Farfoy signalled an appetite for spreading public funding for journalism beyond public broadcasters. He told Media Watch in December 2018, if we keep public funding strictly for public media entities and things continue in the way they have been, they may no longer be in existence in three or four years and we will only have one voice for media. However, the value that New Zealanders around the country get from this funding boost will depend very much on how New Zealand On Air distributes it, alongside the $180 million a year it currently parcels out to competing media for stuff that isn't news or journalism. This week we asked New Zealand On Air for an interview with Chief Executive Cameron Harland about all this. They declined, saying it's too early to say so soon after an announcement how they'll spend the money, and they were working on a timeline which will soon be made public. 
but after the funding boost for New Zealand on air, its annual budget will top $200 million in 2022. And by that time, the government's total annual spend on media and broadcasting will be more than $330 million a year, including the cost of Māori television, Whakata Māori, and the budget of the Māori media funding agency, Tamangai Pāho, which are funded under the auspices of the Māori Development Ministry, Te Puni Kōkiri. One person who's tracked public funding of media down the years under successive governments is Dr Peter Thompson. He's a senior lecturer on media at Victoria University of Wellington and he's also a former chair of the lobby group Better Public Media which campaigns for a complete public media platform. I mean, $55 million over three years is certainly a lot more significant as an investment than the amount that was devoted to the local democracy reporting fund. Um, that's still going at the moment, but that was just over a million dollars. So this is a, on another scale altogether. Um, it's a little bit less than the $75 million that the minister suggested he might ask for back in October, but $55 million is certainly a, a, a significant amount. But, of course, it is only for three years. And I think that raises some questions about exactly what problems that fund is going to solve. But it does raise some questions about sustainability and also whether this this particular initiative is primarily aimed at trying to stabilise a news media sector that suffered really very badly over the last 20 years, even before COVID. But if you go back to, say, 1999, I mean, newspapers back then had about 40% of the total advertising spend, and I've checked, and it's about down to about 10% 20 years later in 2019, and that's taken a hit over the COVID period. So that 55 million isn't going to compensate for, for the loss of hundreds of millions of advertising dollars that have been sucked out of the, of the news sector over the last two decades. But if you go back to 1999, as you did there, newspapers had nothing much to do with the public purse. They were kind of proud of their independence from it. Do you think this really entrenches uh, the expansion of uh, public funding, the public purse, and bankrolling news and journalism, which it didn't used to do at private media companies? Y- yes, it does. Um, now, is, is, is that a legitimate public policy goal? Well, you can certainly make an argument that the fourth estate is a you know, very valuable institution within any democratic society uh, and, and where they're, they're, they're suffering a massive decline in revenues, uh, something ought to be done about it. However, offsetting the, the commercial opportunity costs of public service content provision in an extremely commercially tight environment are often higher than providing direct funding to public service media. And one of the issues is that it raises questions about whether or not the minister is going to have money to spend on other policy initiatives, such as the proposed merger between RNZ and TVNZ. Then you've got to ask questions about whether, whether there's also going to be funding for other core activities, such as providing a robust public service media at the centre of the media ecology. And Peter, this $55 million in total over three years will be administered by New Zealand On Air. They're the gatekeeper here and the ones who will decide which applications, which ideas, which projects, uh, uh, when they were set up, they were not supposed to do this at all. One of the reasons they never funded news and current affairs is because there was a, A, it was already being produced, and B, the cost of actually subsidising that on a daily basis would just have been enormous and completely impractical. Um, Um, The question is, what are the criteria by which it's going to be gauged? 
I mean, the local democracy reporting fund uh, employed a journalist, you know, that was then dedicated to a particular area of, of, of regional reporting. Um, in this case, it sounds like the funds are going to be project-based, but what the criteria are, we don't know. Yes, because you could argue, couldn't you, that sustaining public interest journalism uh, at a local or even a, a, a larger level you know, public dollars might be better invested if that's the goal into things like, you know, creating a digital subscription platform for them or, or allowing them to replace their online content management system, their publishing system, something like that, rather than actual journalism projects and, and pieces of work. We, we don't know exactly where the money is going to be spent. So I, th- I, think, I think there's going to be a, a real need for, for, for transparency in this new fund. And, and a very clear set of criteria so that we can be absolutely sure that every public dollar that gets spent is actually producing high-quality, independent public interest news. And finally, Peter, uh, this over the three years uh, of this, this fund that's boosting the total amount that the government's spending on media every year, I think it's going to go up uh, well over $300 million a year in total. This amount is, is rising pretty substantially year on year, and yet it's not always clear to the public where it's all going. I mean, at the moment, we've got so many different you know, areas of funding across the board with rather different and discrete functions. Um, and and I, think, I think the difficulty is that if you try and make the argument that, well, we've got 300 million, uh, all of that should go into a single public media entity. I think the difficulty is you've got, to, you've got to make the case for unwinding the existing recipients of the funding. And it's very difficult to do that without disrupting the media ecology. I mean, for example, you know, if you dismantle you know, New Zealand Air, of course, there'd be howls from, 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 the, you know, from the production industry that that was going to completely undermine media production in New Zealand, even if that money did go to content forms in, a, in another entity. So I think, I, think, I think it's a very difficult question. On, on the face of it, yes, you could make a case for saying that, that that level of funding could be usefully reorganized. But when you actually look at the institutional logistics and practicalities of, of reallocating that kind of fund, I think, I think it gets very difficult. So what I would say, though, we still need strong public service media at the centre of the ecology. And what I would very much hope is that the investment in this new journalism fund was not going to compromise the future funds for public service media in Aotearoa, New Zealand. It was Dr Peter Thompson, a senior lecturer on media at Victoria University of Wellington, who's also the former chair of the lobby group Better Public Media, campaigning for a complete public media platform. Well, that's all from the Media Watch team for this week, but we'll be back with more media on Midweek Media Watch, talking to Karen Hay on The Lately Show at about 10.30 next Wednesday night. And then we'll be back with more Media Watch at the same time next weekend, here on RNZ National.